Were you affected much uh, as a child by horror movies? Well, yes, I was. Uh, what I was interested in and what I felt very deeply when I would experience it is that feeling just of fear and suspense. And I realized that I could that horror movies really was where I needed to go to, to get this on a regular basis. Uh, that sort of feeling of, of danger and, you know, get that heightened pulse, you know, get the amygdala going. I was very afraid to watch them. I was very skittish about watching any uh, gore or anything too scary. Like, even any particularly intense emotional responses by the people, I, I, those also could, could, could frighten me. So I knew, that I, I knew that I was curious. I knew that I was fascinated with them. Whatever little bits of information I could get about what might have happened you know, in, a, in a certain horror film or these different kills you know, that would be described or, or you know, I'd see a trailer... Or I, it, the whole thing fascinated me, but I was too scared to watch them. So I kind of had to feel my way down a path of desensitization. I started by asking a lot of grown-ups that I knew that had seen horror movies, uh, what were they like, and I, 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 I grilled them to a creepy degree about the, the monsters and the gore, and I tried to put together in my, in my child brain what how a person could see that, could, could witness these events without becoming uh, completely unhinged or forever changed or warped. And then I, I started with some sort of PG-level scary movies, and I, wa I watched them as long as I could stand it, and you know there would always be usually one or two scenes that would frighten me too much and I would have to turn away. But each time that... The film came on, and this was the days of the scheduled cable. Every time that film came on, I would push myself a few seconds more into the scene that frightened me. And uh, so, I, you know, there was definitely this feeling that I wanted, and horror movies were, were my source. I couldn't quite figure out how to get it, but I, I just was very squeamish about blood and, and, and violence and, and gore. But I just realized, you know, that uh, this was going to be uh, perhaps collateral damage along the way. If I wanted to get that real, that real thrill, fear experience, I was just going to have to wade through some viscerally challenging things. And uh, one one summer, I decided that that was it. I was going to I was going to get over my squeamishness, and I was going to uh, I was going to just take the summer. I was going to go to my local my local video store. And rent every just start from the beginning and rent every single horror movie that was uh, in the section. And uh, by doing this, I, I did quite realize that my child mind, my imagination, made these scenes a lot more uh, realistic and frightening than they actually were. And that uh, <laughs> all of the gore in most of these things was very conspicuous and not threateningly. Uh, realistic looking, I kind of came to appreciate that part of horror movies as an art uh, unto itself. 
So I, I did. I was I, w I was very affected to uh, affected by them. I was very drawn to them. But it was a process. But it was a I was determined. I mean, I it was a very purposeful process for me. It wasn't something that that came came naturally. I had to chase it because I knew. <laughs> Uh, horror movie, horror movies were the drug, and they had what I want. Yeah, uh, my very first image of a motion picture in my entire life was of a horror movie. I don't have very many memories of some ridiculous movie about um, children with black fingernails who become zombies after being exposed to toxic waste, riding a school bus through a small town. I, I forget what it was, but I, I made it out okay from that experience. I wasn't especially intrigued. Something odd did happen to me when I was about 12. I didn't have many friends. A kid down the street named Brent got a hold of a 8mm movie camera with sound, very fancy, and, you know, nothing would do but uh, that we make a zombie movie. So, uh, of course, he got a, another couple of friends together, and we messed around one day in a field, and uh, there was a, a scene, and I don't know why I was picked to be the victim instead of a zombie, but they wanted to create a lot of fake blood, and they, they uh, one of them had a book by some special effects master from from the 70s and early 80s. And there was, uh, I remember, corn syrup, corn starch, red food dye. It was very exciting. But I was the one selected to be covered in this fake blood. And there was an ev even an attempt at, at gore, I remember. They applied this to me and went about the scene. And, of course, nothing came of the movie. It was never continued. But I do remember that Brent got those original 3 minutes and 20 seconds of 8mm film developed. He sent them out. Kodak sent them back. And he ran them through the projector. And we were all sitting there in the dark, just open-mouthed and, and wide-eyed at what had been created here, this terrible little thing. And on the screen, suddenly there I was, a very shaky handheld shot, covered in blood and primitive gore. I looked at myself, and I was traumatized to a degree that I, I was never again in any form of my life, despite uh, some of the things I've seen. Because seeing myself there on the screen, a, a dead person, somehow it all came crashing down into me, that even though I knew what death was, sort of as an abstraction, suddenly death was this thing that I that was going to come for me. I didn't understand it until then, seeing myself on the screen in this awful horror clip. The death was out there, and not only would it eventually come for me, it could come unexpectedly and gruesomely. Gosh, that's, you know, that makes me think of, um, I think that I, I love about horror movies and have come to love, it does provide a space where you can come up against these things, these these primal things, in in sort of a you know a safe a safe way. Uh, and so on the one hand, it, it it's kind of I think of it as a playground uh, for those for those darker impulses. 
Uh, and on the other hand, you know, I wonder, one of the reasons why gore, I think, is, you know, blood and gore is just so, is so upsetting, is that, you know, especially as children, our, our encasement, our body inside our skin, inside our skull, just in, you know, we're the self-contained, uh, everything we know of the world and experiences is the self-contained unit, you know, and the idea that that barrier can be ripped open and our very, <laughs> our very psychology, just everything is housed in this, in this capsule. And, uh, you know, to find out, to be presented with the fact that all that is actually like everything else, just matter that can be destroyed is quite horrifying. I mean, I wonder with, you know, I, I think I always usually think that mostly on horror films, everyone's having a pretty good time. Uh, but it probably depends on a lot of things you're bringing to it, but you know, how thoroughly does the nervous system bounce back, you know, after these, after these enactments, especially if you have to uh, repeat them over and over and really dial into that, uh, that darkness and that fear and that just that desperation. I, I, I mean, I can't help but, but really think that it's impossible not to take some of that with you. The production was, some say, doomed from the start. The bad luck set in like a root, took hold, and ate its way down. For instance, an episode, or just one day. Henny plays the lead role. That is, she's the one who brings money to the film, or at least a great big bite of it. As someone like herself, split jaggedly into pieces, trying to paste them all together in a wheel. The story is set in a hot place, but it is actually jarringly cold, and so tricks are needed to maintain this lie. The actors stuff ice in their mouths between takes to hide the steam. It makes everything more difficult, and lots of scenes have to be reshot, not to mention what it does to the nerves. On this day, her character collides wrecking and exhausted with the man who's following her. She's finally tired. On this night, she'll welcome whatever ugly or handsome horror is to come. He wears a cassock, is demented on his path, and he's been there the whole time, haunting the alleys and sunken doorways and stairs down to cellar apartments, clutching and building a world in around him like a grave. He pours a smeared jar of gray water over the crown of her head to purify her ostensibly to serve some god. They have to do this again and again and again. She can smell his body through the robes. Later on, Henny is frequently buzzed up after work, and it often takes a couple of hours to come down. But this feels different. She perches at the little bar counter in her beige rental with shaking hands. She tries to let her thoughts run out, 
She imagines they will exhaust themselves like a dog. But they go to the fear place, the family house on the lake. I was afraid a lot, but the worst spots were on the porch. It was the end of it, at night, where the boards end, where they seemed to fly off down the hill into the dark trees. When the runt yellow light and summer and fall, little winged things passed beneath and clanged against it dryly. And you could hear the sounds of the animals that passed beyond its reach, but you could not see. One night I opened the screen door, just a little, I'm not sure why, maybe because of the sounds. A man sat there. I saw his curved back. He was curled over, sitting on the edge of the porch, too curved, and his legs hung down, invisible to me, into the wide black tarp of the lawn. He turned to look at me. Maybe she'll go to the diner. She could go and sip tea and get one of their pale little salads in the pale little bowls, watch the steam from the grill and the boiling pots make its way to the windows and drip down over the street. But she knows that's not where she is going. So what are you doing uh, out there in the, in the field this time around? I am l- looking into uh, something related to what we're discussing. Uh, you know, we hear these, these dark things about, uh, you know, tr- cursed films, troubled sets. And those, are, th- those, those rumors are, you know, well, well they may uh, drum up some excitement for the film. They're not, you know, as, as, as we all know, there are reasons for everything usually. But there is a film, and it, it's not—it's not a well-known mainstream film. So maybe this is partly why um, the, these details uh, seem to kind of stick around and, and simmer. It's a film called *All the Better*. Of course, you know those are um, uh, beginnings of lines from *Little Red Riding Hood*. Right? All the better to—I don't even recall. All the better to see you with, my dear. All the better to hear you with. It's kind of a uh, plucky-sounding title, but then, uh, but uh, but it's actually quite sinister. It uh, came out in the '80s. <laughs> There's plenty of information out there about it. But I was speaking to some people about some of these events. I came out to this area where um, part of the film was filmed in a, a studio lot in California, and then part was a film's location. As, uh, as sometimes happens, I came to this area, which is gorgeous. It's, it's, this, it's this mountainous rural area where there are um, smaller towns, which are, of course, you know, for filmmakers, reasonable to, um, to shoot there. Uh, and there's these, it's, it's gorgeous. There's these dramatic mountain backgrounds, you know, and all these, all these towns. And winter is starting to, to set in. It was an old mining town, and I just started to uh, talk to people who were here when the filmmakers came to town. It wasn't one of those large productions that sort of took over the entire area, but there were um, there were the actors were here and the director and a crew. 
details have emerged in later years about how difficult the making of this film was, largely due to uh, biographies and autobiographies of the people involved uh, coming out and sharing sharing details. Both of the lead actors, you know, they were in very different parts of their lives uh, and careers, but they both kind of had these separate nervous breakdowns uh, that really started on set. And the director and the screenwriter had these dark periods too afterwards. You know, this film, just to exaggerate a bit, but it, it's in effect ended their careers, both of their careers. This is an unusual detail. The catering manager, the craft services guy, he actually committed suicide on the day of the film's release. Um, there were insistences from all, from all involved that the studio that they used to film parts of it was actually extremely haunted which you know I mean if you if you think of uh, if you if you think of all the turmoil that uh, that's uh, that Hollywood uh, is responsible for creating and and uh, and magnifying uh, you know that that's that's the part of the story that's uh, it's it's fun to think about but it also I mean I really wonder in this case right because I mean people really, took on this darkness and took it took it away with them after after the filming the actor playing the man playing the priest was brilliant or had certainly been but had become over the assault of years brittle and ropey and drawn his strength now came from a stretched and sprung place much of the preparation he assigned himself for this project was to dutifully ingest the catalog of drugs that his character might consume. He took to sitting curled and fetal behind the crew chairs and tapping his hand on himself, clicking rosary beads in the front pocket of his shirts. But also, he saw something on the first day of shooting that changed everything. Everything for him, and probably everything else, too. Some tall plywood dividers set off to the side, which would soon become taller, part of the streetscape somehow. To add a shadow or depth or angle to a scene, he didn't know. He was a career actor, an elder statesman. And while he knew a lot of things, he'd also learned to ignore many others, because he didn't need to know them. In fact, it was better if he didn't, because then maybe he could still be surprised. On that first day, he was. In a quiet moment, he paced past the leaning boards, and something looked at him over the top. Some thing. It wasn't even fast. The head moved up carelessly just until the eyes crested. They were so big and round and white, he only saw the top halves. He froze. His nerves tore in violent shock. It seemed river-colored, like mud or gray caves, like the mold before a ceiling's ripped out. Then it was gone, ducked out of sight. He didn't make a sound, but he swore he saw the thing in numerous places throughout every upcoming day, boldly walking the perimeter of studio lots, waving down from sills and beams. 
From that first day, he became sick. He became sick, but he still came to work. He was a pro. He was a pro, and he would use it. He would use it when he collided with the heroin. He used it through the smell of bleach and linoleum and rag water. There was trouble with the scene at first, but as they both repeated it over and over, they started to sink up, and she joined him and clasped his arms in exhaustion, in resignation, and they mumbled a prayer, which dovetailed and got wilder as they went and flew off the tracks. After shooting that night, he walked back to his hotel. Considering the hour and the distance, this was unrealistic, ill-advised. But he had to think. All he could hear was the thing behind him now, getting stronger, taking more chances, ticking pebbles and bits of glass out in front of him as it hitched weirdly, unnaturally, along. What's that? he asked in front of the dailies. That shape there. He could smell it now like dank wet leaves. Nothing. I don't see anything. A shadow. It's fine. We're using that other take anyway. The production was, some say, doomed from the start. The bad luck set in like a root, took hold, and ate its way down. The difficulties the cast had brings back to mind now I don't remember the name of the movie it was some very obscure uh, and apparently not very good vampire movie an actor named uh, Lawrence Leonard uh, popped up in a few things back in the day he auditioned for this vampire movie did not get the part but he he took the script home and he kept reading it and rereading it, kept reading the script and, and supposedly got more and more obsessed with the, the character of the vampire and uh, went about the process, uh, the very, uh, what's it called, method acting process of immersing himself in the character, even though he didn't have the job. And at some point, he got into some sort of trouble because... Uh, he was arrested um, for, for stalking some woman uh, in, in, in the town. The, the rumor began to circulate that he had taken his uh, commitment level way too far. I don't know if you, if you remember, remember that. Now that you're talking about it, I do. I do remember that. I'm thinking now from my limited reserve of film memory, I, I'm thinking of a couple of scenes that I have seen and I came away not really understanding how anyone could even function as a person uh, after shooting this thing. The first one was, oh, what's her name? A French actor. Uh, Isabel Johnny. She was in a movie called Possession. There's a scene where she is a down on a subway platform and she's slowly being taken over by some spirit or something and the camera just holds on her relentlessly as she has just this apocalyptic uh, invasion inside herself, an attack. She's tearing at herself. She's ripping at herself, flinging her body around, screaming her throat. 
uh, becoming more and more sore, all done in seemingly one take. And when it was, when I watched it and it was done, I thought, how, how can she go on? How can she get up and smile at this crew that is surrounding her and say, I'm okay. And then uh, Nicolas Cage in a movie called Mandy, a scene where immediately after his his wife has been killed and he's been injured and horribly hurt, he, he stumbles home and uh, the camera just watches him have a complete and utter meltdown as he swigs whiskey, uh, trying to regain some sense of sanity. I just, uh, I when I saw these scenes, I tried to step back and wonder if at the end of the scene, when they yelled cut, if there was nervous laughter or kind of a spooky silence as, as people realized what they had just watched. There must be out there actors that we think of in one way, but they've been in very difficult to shoot horror movies where they they were subtly changed by the experience and we will never really know that because it's not the kind of thing that they're going to talk about in their autobiographies. It's not the kind of thing they're going to share with interviewers to be knocked off your course and to learn something about yourself that you didn't want to know because you, you simulated an axe murder on the screen or you played a possessed character or a werewolf. They, they just got too close, too close to the horror. Horror in five acts. One. The film started, believe it or not, as a faraway, disloyal adaptation of a play, which mostly, if not wholly, was a scene of two people in conversation. The talk started small and got big, or it started big and got small, and careful light from lamps lit their faces like shifting walls. It was about, as many plays are, the problematic harmonization of the warring factions inside ourselves. Two. The director was notoriously notorious, but over his long run had earned some space. He'd reached the plateau where he was mostly left alone by the studio. They knew how it would go. At this point, it was kind of a play battle with plastic green guns. But he and the screenwriter had a dangerous relationship. They were like bleach and ammonia mixed. Two poisons mixed make a poison. But the thing they made would be talked about a long time after. Forever. Some praise, some hate. But all of it was tasty. Three. The food on set was unusual. Opulent perverse from another time the craft services company was well known renowned even the owner seemed to have special connections with vendors he was an eccentric an artist from a snowy place who had possessed maniacal energy and zeal but lately he'd been disturbed blotched with a dark 
His last job actually had ended disastrously, and he was fired for his warped pulse. One hard night, he allowed himself a break and sat at one of the tables. He drew his hand over the nervy country of his face. I lost my daughter, he told the actor sitting there, picking in earnestly at some fruit. This world is not for me anymore. Four. There were sounds that didn't make sense. The mixer worked worn down and raw as strange new noises, not since during the initial filming, surfaced and had to be blended, scrubbed away. The concrete halls and channels, resembling the deep romance of a map of identical storage units, echoed deeply on the stillest of nights, and there was a howling and a scraping that seemed to come from the wood planks and cells themselves. The area nearest the studio door stank sometimes like soft skin that was wet too long. The back east corner was clammy with drafts. Later on, there were apparitions, visible things, and this was the worst of it. There was one main one, and everyone who saw it broke like a mirror, like a picture frame. Five. The horror movie it became, horror, that most beautiful of words, musical, windy, is an odd jewel box of a film, pink suits and white neon coffee tables, doorknobs of blades, a pastiche of a tale, Little Red Riding Hood wanders the pre-dawn streets, a wolf in preacher's clothing emptying his body behind some bent metal cans. The intent was, like many attempts on many things, to turn it on its head, but the turning is usually forced and not that interesting. And the turning is not even really a turning. Like most people, it wasn't trained. It wasn't vetted to hold weight. Like a cardboard container, it wouldn't hold. Like everything, it has to start somewhere. So here we are. The bad luck set in like a root, took hold, and ate its way down. Recently, I've um, rewatched several films in the canon of the French extreme. And uh, this is kind of a horror, I don't, I don't even want to say a movement, but um, it's. Um, of a, it's a debatable uh, grouping of, of uh, French horror films, horror and or sort of dreadful films that are just very intense, uh, hence the extreme. One of the things that's interesting about them is they, they lean toward being very, very female oriented, um, which, is, which is unusual. 
and also th th there's one that you know some people consider part of the part of part of the French extreme and some 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 don't. But there's a film called In My Skin uh, by Marina Devan. She wrote and directed and stars in it. This is about a woman who, um, you know, I don't even want to say self mutilation because we all have an idea about what that is. But it's a, it's a woman who. You know, she's well-adjusted, she's professional, she's in a healthy relationship. She, she's at a party one night and she falls out in the yard and she gets a, a cut on her uh, leg and just doesn't quite realize at first how, how bad it is uh, until she gets a moment alone and notice that, notices all this blood and so she has a, a minute to inspect it. But this kind of shatters her in a way that she becomes almost immediately completely preoccupied with cutting herself but not it, it's it has nothing to do with the sensation of cutting or stress relief or any any of that but it's as if she has been presented or has suddenly realized that she has this whole undiscovered country inside her her own body and she begins to sort of cut herself it, like almost like she's trying to see inside she even begins to taste parts of her own flesh like she it's like she's trying to be outside and inside herself at the same time part of seeing this there there's a there's a prolonged scene where she's looking at herself in a mirror while she's while she's making these sort of doorways and cuts in herself. And she just, the way she is sort of blankly gazing into her own eyes, it, you know, it made me think of, you know, we all have these thresholds with um, visual violence, right? The, with We all have things uh, in, in, in gore that particularly gross us out or we're particularly squeamish about. I find it one of the most difficult things to go through is to have kind of someone's, your face actually dismantled by force or by violence. This happens in horror films sometimes, right? Because the head is a very dramatic place to, uh, to strike. I'm very traumatized by seeing the very... It, because the head, the skull, the brain is the very house of a person, right? It's, it, it holds everything. It's hold, it holds, the, you know, the, the, the computer of the body. <laughs> it's, 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 it's where your psychology lives. It, it, it's your very person, your, your head, your, your face. And seeing those features um, obscured uh, or destroyed or dismantled, there's something about that you know, horror is one of the best genres with which to examine the human condition, with which to examine ourselves, to look at ourselves. I don't know, this is, this is I think horror is one of those, those arenas you can explore those particularly visceral and biological questions and fears and... Um, Confusions. Uh, you 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 can explore those things within that genre because it's <laughs> it's kind of um, anything goes, you know. And and I, I I really appreciate that about it.